Every day, several times a day, a thought comes over me. I owe more debt than I ever can pay back, more money than I'll ever see. I walk around the streets of Coney Island. I look through the windows of every store. I peep through the hallways and the doorways, and I think of this debt I owe. I peep through the hallways and the doorways, and I think of this debt I owe. I feel like a piece of crushed wreckage, some smashed car in a salvage yard. A vision of an old newspaper blown across an old navy yard. A curbstone chipped and beaten. A piece of gum stuck to a shoe. An empty pack of used matches. An empty version of you.、Mm-hmm. An empty pack of used matches. An empty version of. Welcome to diving into the wreckage,、uh, episode six dash three. This is going to be a hard numerical system because we were calling <laughs> one episode.、Uh, we we labor episodes by topic, and this topic is going to be like I don't know. It may end up being twenty fucking episodes. Six point two five is coming down the pipe, man. I mean, this is what happens when you take on such a, a broad topic, such as debt crises.、Um, mm-hmm. We got、uh, we got two in, and I think the last one we took a little sidebar because we spoke about、um, the kind of prehistory of this, which is to say the neoliberal turn and what debt crises had to do with that. We've obviously talked a lot about,、um, or you've critiqued a lot of the MMT sort of takes on this because you can't really discuss this without talking about money and currency. We've talked a lot about the、yeah. geopolitics of this, and today I think we're going to do a kind of newsy update. Slash, as always, I think in every single one of these sub episode parts, we're going to try to look at some trends, try to understand where things are heading. You know, because every every couple of weeks, every few weeks when we record, something、uh, something new drops. But it's interesting to me when we when we look at this, when we think about、um, every every dumbass leftist on the internet who's picked up what they don't realize is nineteenth and early twentieth century. English geopolitics because they picked it up through Alexander Dugan using it th- using it <laughs> at a time and, and I think people forget why he tried to popularize this language in particular. You're talking about、uh, Eurasianism versus Atlanticism. Yeah, no, no, no. The the multipolar instead of staying、wow. on Eurasianism versus、uh, versus Atlanticism and Atlanta and land versus sea power, which is the other analysis. Uh, which actually has a long history in Eurasian Eurasian theories of geopolitics in Russia, but one of the things that, that、uh, and actually did seem to be slightly part of the Belt and Road strategic logic too, as far、mm-hmm. as like not in a military way in the way that like Dugan wants, but in a we're going to form an alternate trade route logic. Now we've we've seen that that isn't happening the way China wants it. Yeah, I, I have also noticed that, frankly, all the China stands have shut the fuck up lately because they just don't want to deal with the fact that none of the news coming out of China seems good. Yeah,、um, except for the、uh, beginning impending third term of、uh, President Xi, 
I mean, I guess that's pretty exciting. But yeah, economically not so good. Um, the obviously um, the real estate market has plummeted. I think they I think they're um, they're predicting two percent growth. Yeah, in China, uh, which is incredible if you consider the last thirty years. I mean, th- that is officially. It, it, interestingly enough, if these if if these people were actually following the way people talked about China for the past twenty five years, they would be able to use this to like trump. Uh, the neoliberals who said, well, as soon as China gets low growth, and by low growth, they meant less than 10%. Uh, we should be so lucky. <laughs> uh, that China was going to fall apart. Yeah. What what I will say is one one trend that I actually got from an Indian commentator in regards to China, uh, and we have to remember that India and China are at odds and have been since the 60s, and they will strategically align with Russia in a way that makes perfect sense because both of them kind of don't want Russia to develop an independent bloc. Mm. Um, you mean within the post-Soviet sphere? Right. Yeah. Um, they're okay with, with Russia being a, a kind of mega, like... like Commodity clearinghouse, sort of? Yeah, or, or the elder brother. Yeah, like okay. the, the elder The elder brother who is not in charge. Right. Um, think about it in this way, because it gives you, I mean, Russia is so resource rich um, and actually, ha- and you, if you can get access even to their population for work, it's actually quite useful because mm. it's highly educated. Um, but the average, you know, Russia's refusal to, like the Soviet refusal to go into small industry has like had now <laughs> over almost, a, like we're going to, in the next 20 years, going to be approaching a century of repercussions of that. Um, yeah. Uh, so it's interesting how Russia, Soviet Union into Russia. I mean, we all know that one of the great um, economic crises of, of of the USSR was its inability, as you said, to push forward not just consumer goods but light manufacturing in general within the system. You know, you've had you've had that in Russia, and then a, a complete liquidation of the heavy industry that was built up during that period. Not complete, but a large liquidation of it. With all that, of course, being left is a uh, an arms industry. An arms um, industry in a petro state. With, petro state with, with a lot of wheat as well. Yeah, a lot we of wheat. Have, with, 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 with fairly decent mechanized agriculture. Mm-hmm. Right. Large um, latifundia, similar to you see across the uh, developing and advanced capitalist world in the United States and Canada and Brazil, you know, large, big agribusiness uh, plants, which but, is highly productive, but also employs very, very few people. So, you know, this is where I'm going to what made me piss a lot of people off. A lot of people's Please. favorite leftists have been utterly wrong about the long-term trajectories of this. Where, whereas I've just been listening to bog standard, like geopolitical people um, of, of, of left, right, and center and bog standard economic analysis from London. Hmm. Um, mostly, actually, because because American economic analysis seems to have drank its own ideological water. That's kind of a new trend where, like, the analysis is now eco- uh, ideological. Hmm. Um, You're talking like Wall Street Journal and New York Times and all. Yeah, these and things. and even like the people who independently write for them, like yeah. they they seem to now all be on various trains of. Like for example, um, uh, the Larry Summers now now Krugman train, uh, mm. uh, where Krugman's siding with you know the the more monetarist 
uh, in the policy. That's kind of that. That is interesting to me. I've never trusted Krugman for people who like, who, who and and they're. I've been in this for ten years, so there actually is a record. <laughs> um, my, I, I remember my first left battle was me saying Krugman's full of shit on the <laughs> coin, and who was and, defending him? <laughs> oh, it was like everybody because everybody was. This was before MMT had in the public gotten its neo charterless justification. Mm. It was still under the justification of Minsky, like Minsky post, uh, um, post Liqu- liquidity trap pushing on a string shit mm-hmm. after the two thousand eight. Yeah, the neo charterless was it was kind of a, a smart advance, but also a way to make that the MMT left synthesis of like Giannis Varoufakis was utterly wrong, mm. and the only way they could, and, and in fact. In many ways, them having the the fact that Giannis was purged and they didn't do what Giannis said because it would have been destructive um, uh, has been the defense of people not of people taking Giannis seriously, even though like his policies, which is something that that I was literally fighting with the entire left with in 2012, 2013. Um would have if if actually attempted um crashed the economy because Greece cannot be an autarky mm, you have mm-hmm. to be a large state there's a denial um a lot of these people view capital in terms of balance books mm. and and that's you know that and, and when you hear some of their proofs you're like no, you're you're aspiring a causal explanation to balance book trends in one or two states, finding historical examples that back that up. Mm. Um, well, and usually they're weird horses, like they're like Rhodesia. Mm-hmm. I mean, like if you Oof. actually like read Ray's book or Mitchell's book, um, and then saying that this weapon of of forcing compelling people into capital t- through debt accusations and because that's what that's what they did, um, and that's their model. And so they say we could use it progressively, basically, because mm. debt implies credit, and credit implies building. But then there's this flip side where they're not actually that different than everybody else. Because one of the th- one of the things people don't want to admit about Keynesianism is Keynes does have an answer for inflation. What Keynes says tax is, the rich, right? Is tax everybody actually tax everybody, yeah, right? Uh, tax the rich more. Pull money, pull money out of the economy. Pull money out of the economy, and and that is actually the MMT theory of of how you handle inflation too. That's not that they. Now there's been a new one floated by people like Warren Mosley that I've talked about before, where they think that that the government's purchasing power can set prices because they treat the economy, each national economy, as a as, as almost autarkist, mm. which is insane. Methodological um, nationalism, man. Yeah. It's a hell of a drug. I've just it's, picked up a book about um, the international ramifications of uh, the Napoleonic Wars. And um, just that particular frame that the, that people use, they, they reify states. Uh, they, they like naturalize ruling classes. They personify nations. The same sort of thing happens in uh, economics as well, where mm-hmm. like 
especially over the last 30 years, the really intricate interconnections, not just with currency, but of course, commodities as well, gets very much lost in the mix. And I think this is one of the ways in which mainstream economics, even heterodox economics falls on its face. The only people who are taking seriously like this, this actual crisis and it's, it's really deep structural um, beginnings are people who look at this from a global perspective. So whether right. you're doing post-Keynesianism, whether you're doing post-Minskyism, you're doing MMT, you're doing quote unquote Marxism or whatever, if you're in that particular mindset, which is the mindset of the state, you know, that is the methodological uh, underpinnings of state action and ruling class action. Because of course, these, all of these battles, all these conflicts, all of these movements and flows of money and people and goods are um, facilitated by state action. And so it makes sense, I think, intuitively for people who are people like Krugman, right? So Krugman, you know, you said you don't trust. So what Krugman represents is um, the articulate sort of post-Keynesian Democratic Party, mainstream, liberal common sense uh, about the economy, right? So when, when I read a Krugman piece or when I read Larry Summers, I don't think I don't look at them as dispassionately trying to understand the stakes, understand the statistics, understand the world. What I understand, of course, is them as embedded and implicated within various different factions and structures of ultimately the ruling class and popular society so, as yeah. well. And working out, working, wor working these things out in like not just um, theoretically, but of course, also practically for so the people who rule us. I think we're going to see more and more of a right wing turn because of this, because I, when you really think about this systemically and, and what you come to the conclusion is there is a world government. It's the people who control the money. It's the central bankers. And there's basically two sets of them. There's the there's the Chinese Yuan ones who are trying to form a counter power. And right now, because of of geopolitical actions beyond their control. Mm -hmm. Which is why I don't believe that uh, she really knew the scale of what Putin was going to do in Ukraine. And I've said this yeah. many times because this I totally screws I the think, yeah. I think he did. I think all he all he did in the lead up to it, of course, was tell him to hold off until the finish of the Beijing Olympics. He knew right. something was going to happen, but he probably thought what all of us thought, that if war came, it would be a limited operation in the Donbass. It would try mm -hmm. to take back those two separatist states and, you know, potentially bring them in. But, but the internationalism thing is interesting. Like when you say that there's two great power blocks and they're the people that control the money and then that they're the rulers, we have to, of course, differentiate ourselves from the sort of vulgar conspiracists out there. Because I, we were talking about before the show about this great gulf and this great separation between people on the broader left, between the vast majority who I think sees, um, the ruling class is having perhaps imperfect, um, but uh, very powerful agency uh, within the world that they're able to craft, not just the larger events across the world, not just monetary policy, of course, but politics and geopolitics or whatever, but also in the micro too. You know, you yeah. see this people on the left who fall into the COVID conspiracy stuff too. Um, but are, are all, I mean, CIA conspiracies, the people who believe yeah. that like, and we've we've gone down that you know we've, yeah, we've I mean, discussed that joke. before. It's, it's it's a joke, but it's but it's in it's important to I think I like understand the ways in which they do, and monetary policy is one of them. You take like a, a figure like Varoufakis, who you mentioned before, when we're talking about methodological nationalism. 
he and I was at a Adam Tooze lecture on Wednesday mm-hmm. night. Uh, Tooze is another one that I think people should actually hold more accountable for. Yeah. He's been right about a lot of stuff. He's also been wrong about a lot he, of stuff. He asks a lot of the right questions and he looks in the lot in a lot of the right directions. But if you like, if you get to the inner logic of his argument, it's very much one that's about these macroeconomic structures um, that it's an institutional logic that he has, right? So when things break down, it's because of institutional actors. It's about subjective choices. He doesn't have, it seems to me, and maybe I haven't read enough Adam twos, but in, you know what I, he doesn't seem to have the same sort of systemic analysis that say like even Ted Reese has gotten out of Grossman or somebody like Brenner, somebody like Michael Roberts, like true people doing uh, Anwar Sheikh, people doing analysis of the actual, you know, crisis tendencies of capitalism. The, the problem that you have with Marxism, it is not a problem that that means we're wrong. Um, m- the problem that you have is the complexity of scale when you're talking about these trends is nearly impossible to parse out. And, and, and the different amount of skills you need to do it, you know, Anwar uh, Sheikh is one of them. Um, uh, you know, I, I think uh, Robert Brenner is another, but when you deal with Marx now, you're not just, you're dealing with, you need, you need to understand theology you need to understand um, this, that, and the other. And one of the, you know, you need to understand global economic change. You need to understand supply chain. You need to understand money transactions. You need to understand how individual businesses actually do their pricing, which is not. It's the, not value either. It's yeah, prices. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, need to, you need to be clear that the only relationship to value and price is in aggregate. And there's a debate over whether or not that aggregate is absolute or statistical, meaning like. Uh, it approaches prices, which then leads to stuff like power um, theory of value, where you say, yeah. because, because, you know, be, and I, I will admit, of the, of the alternate theories of capitalism, power theory of value is the one that makes sense to me until I think about a couple of things. Do you want to people who have it because you had um, uh, a power theory of value? Yeah, I had a a Tim DeMuzio on, and I'm probably going to have uh, Jonathan Anizan, who is one of the original theorists, um, come on and talk about it. We've been in discussions. He 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 was pretty rigorous in what he demanded of me to talk to him. Um, so I need to read Fair both enough. his books by Christmas, um, <laughs> which I will do. I actually uh, appreciate that. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Um, like you got to get on the level, man. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I, I am convinced of, of some of what they say. However, there are problems. And one of this was brought up in, uh, one of these problems was brought up by an Australian listener to my show who I mocked actually during the interview. And then I thought about what he said more. I talked to him privately. Um, and I was like, oh, if power theory of value is true, why is it that governments care about the price of their inputs into coinage? Uh. Um, because that implies they actually can't just set power unilaterally. So I'm like, I'm going to go through the book and see like, okay, what are they actually saying is the, the power networks here? Um, because on one hand, as a Marxist, that's the one that seems closest to what we argue, but it isn't the same thing. What it, What is it exactly? Because I'm not sure. I, well, I it is the idea that both the power of production and the power of force can compel people to take your currency 
And that power, like mm. that, that geopolitical power is a stand in for other kinds of transferabilities historically. Hmm. Now, um, they're not interested in that part, but that's that that part's been developed by uh, by a new PhD and I would say frenemy of mine, Colin Drum. Oh um, yes, yeah, I'm familiar with him. Um, very yeah, smart he, guy, very bright. Yeah, who's been mapping out why currencies might be fiat and why they may be metal at any given time historically over a lot like over you know mostly in medieval england but he's looking at over long periods of history um and that has led me to take the power of as value more seriously the thing is their critique of of both util uh utils which is both the utilitarian theory of of stuff and actually in marginal utility the the, the liberal theory of pricing um, and 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 uh, abstract labor, um, as manifested in value, or surplus, or surplus value, or mm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to use value, um, is that they would their critique as well. You can't really like. There's no way to make those those things that you actually that actually exist. And my response is: there's many things, including the idea of power itself. Mm. Mm. That I'm never gonna find one concrete thing that actually exists, but I can find um I can find trends that approach it. And mm. I have been slowly convinced by the Oconif by by a mixture of the Grossmanites and the Oconophysicist people hmm. um that that there is evidence in aggregate prices that it approaches what Marx would have predicted value to be. So prices mm. approach that in aggregate. Any individual price of any item set won't right like and basically it's price cost push so whatever it costs plus whatever whatever margin of profits they think they can get away with and maintain is how businesses uh actually price their their items um its relationship to the money to the monetary supply is unclear is one of the things that's been clear to me is like the original justification for QE and this I got from the MMTers. I'm just looking at what they said is isn't true. Like it is not actually directly injecting lots of money into the economy, uh, but it does did seem to make it where the stock market would not actually correct itself from adverse action. So that's you know my theory is that's why the QE effect actually even if they aren't flooding the the, the economy with money, they are doing something that seems to make toxic assets less toxic like mm-hmm. somehow somehow the federal reserve buying back uh treasury bonds from private actors means that these debt bonds uh don't explode on individual businesses yeah and and things like facebook are this whole massive tech sector its growth was totally dependent on uh, on the time period of qe yeah. and it has not been surprising to me that even though we're not in general recession yet, um, that that's where the explosion has been. Well, yeah. I mean, if we want to get into uh, recent events, because as I said in the beginning, you know, every time, every few weeks we have this, we have uh, more evidence. We have uh, more things happening. The the Liz Trust debacle from a couple of oh weeks my ago God. was very, very instructive. I talked a little bit about it uh, for Antifada listeners on the show last night, but essentially you had a um, an unelected, 
Well, that's not quite true. Um, uh, a leader, a Tory leader elected by 130,000 uh, Tory um, hardliners, uh, members in conference who took over for Boris Johnson, a real true believer in this sort of Ayn Randian sort of like you were talking about American economic commentators uh, drinking the Kool-Aid. Liz Truss has, and her, her advisor, who is the uh, chancellor of the exchequer? I can never pronounce his name. I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, they, as true believers, they came in and in a situation where uh, the Bank of England, like every single uh, central bank across the globe, following the lead of uh, Brazil and the United States in uh, raising interest rates, they're obviously in a monetarist way trying to pull back on the money supply. Um, what Liz Truss proposes uh, is basically tax cuts on uh, from 45% to 40% for the highest earners. Uh, in Britain, a sort of zombie Thatcherism alongside, I think it's a 150 billion pound package in order to keep households and um, companies uh, with enough uh, w- to subsidize their heating oil. This It winter. was basically what we've done in the in the United States, actually, during Republican administration since Reagan. It's is- a it's a lever that's been pulled over and over again for 40 years, which always had you could say adverse effects. I mean, certainly in terms of society and people's uh, well-being, um, but it's worked to the extent that it's juiced markets and it's certainly made uh, those who hold bonds um, pretty happy with uh, the state of affairs. In this case, it didn't. You know, if people watch what happened last week, essentially this zombie Thatcherism attempt in order to, you know, juice to, to bring innovation and bring job creation to the UK shit the bed so bad that the pension system in Great Britain, which is largely which largely revolves around um, their gilts, their bond market, was hours away from collapse until the Bank of England, which was trying to squeeze monetary policy, uh, cutting across it is the trust administration. And the Bank of England is forced to actually reverse its tightening policies and buy a bunch of those bonds before the bottom fell out of the market um, for those in England. And basically, you had a, a run where you were looking at a financial disaster similar to Lehman Brothers. So it's very interesting for our purposes. Except it was about, pensions. It was the entire was pensions. pension system. Which right, is not a, housing. Which is, yeah, yeah, which is which is terrifying for England because England has a like. One of the things that I point out about the voting patterns in England is the reason. One of the reasons why the labor has been kind of frankly fucked is outside of scotland um the centralization of uh of the uk into one basically mega city in the south london um has left a whole lot of most of the country with basically basically the prime population being pensioners and new immigrants right and a lot of the new immigrants went away with Brexit, so now that's only pensioners. Um, and as in the last 30, 40 years now since uh, deindustrialization on a scale we can't even imagine in the United States. People say the United States is deindustrialized. I mean, Great Britain had basically sold off, liquidated not just its states at, state assets, but large parts, except for like automotive and military industries, right? You've had for the last 30 or 40 years, like the remainder of those good jobs out of which, you know, the 
the baby boomers who are elderly now are collecting those pensions have gone away and young people are on zero hours contracts. And so the pension system, as you said, props up large portions of the population. Um, in the same way that like the Southeast and the Midwest is propped up by military contracts. In the United and, in States. The, and in the same way that if you read Gabe Winant's work, uh, mm-hmm. places like Pittsburgh are propped up by the, by the health industrial complex. I'm going to have Gabe on my show, on my show in the next month. So that's going to be interesting. We're talking about Aaron, right? But we're, we're also be talking about a lot of other stuff. Good. Yeah. Yeah. He points out, of course, this is a very similar dynamic and one that you saw almost explode in Britain. And then something's going to break there. I mean, I, I don't know what it is and when, but Britain is is in for whew, quite a wild ride. But um, yeah, in his book, he basically talks about how in this privatized sort of um, healthcare uh, welfare system that the United States had very much tied to the trade unions, steel workers in particular in Pittsburgh, you know, the topic of his book. Um, as the steel jobs went away, what was left over, but like good health care policies won by the union and, of course, good pensions and good, um, you know, decent Social Security. And so the sort of steel industry transitions and all these workers into a, a for profit healthcare system, which then is largely what's left in a place like Pittsburgh. You know, it's like high class, uh, high end uh, research universities, uh, large hospital systems uh, relying on what's left of this older system in order to reproduce itself. Right. And which it's is, hollowed out the rest of the economy, essentially. Or it's which, a result of the hollowing out. Of which it. is interesting because Pittsburgh is the best case scenario for the yeah. deindustrialization of the worst belt cities. America I, can get away with shit like that. And apparently London can too, but apparently Liverpool and um, Manchester, it's a little tougher. Well, let's, let's be real. Like part of being a materialist is understanding fucking geography. Look, England is an island. It's part of an island. It it like it will never be the productive powerhouse of China, Russia, India, yeah. or the United States, just in terms of scale. And the only reason it ever was was a mixture of island limited innovation, similar to Japan, and um and fucking imperialism. Imperialism, yeah. Right, like sure. And, like, and of course, the early stirrings, really the creation of capitalist social relations, right. which is, of course, as we know, tied into that imperialistic drive. You know, the the great Lanchester, uh, what's it called? Lancaster Mills of, uh, you know, northern England, where water power is used and then coal power and railroads right, and spinning means- and textiles. But that's 200 years ago at this point in time. What and what, the, what yeah. allowed them, of course, World War II. And its aftermath allows Great Britain to socialize a lot of uh, that industry and carry it for another 30 years in a completely different period, after which, of course, there and everywhere else. Let's talk about some other stuff involved in that. Like, like when we you you actually hit the nail on the head. America did not deindustrialize. It de it deprioritized industrial employment. Yeah. We're still the second largest producer of, 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 of manufactured shit on the planet. And, and we are still, even despite all the supply chain stuff, even despite increasing tensions between China and us, highly integrated with both China and European supply chains. If you go, if you're looking at the various little cheap electronics, like the Hamilton coffee maker that you have, or the little blender or the toaster Mm -hmm. oven, those things are made in China. Maybe they're made in Japan if they're nice. Maybe they're made in the United States if they're really fucking nice. But like little home knickknacks and textiles and stuff, that's moved on for generations at this point in time from the United States. But in construction, on the construction site, when I all the materials that we're using and very advanced equipment, 
that's American or that's mm-hmm. Japanese or that's German or hell, that's Italian. And we're going to talk about Italy later on in right. this episode. You know, the United States and Western Europe and Japan still have large bases of industrial manufacture. It's just that a lot of the lower end stuff, the lower value chain stuff has moved on. But yeah, I mean, the United States, people talk about the China shock. It is certainly true that there were whole factories taken in the 1980s and yeah, 19- totally. 1990s over to uh, to East Asia. It's certainly true that deindustrialization, quote unquote, also coincided with a massive consolidation, which people don't really talk about either. They want to blame China or they want to blame the Democrats or the Republicans for this shit. It's also a massive wave. I was looking the other day at a at an article about uh, World War II and also about uh, the arsenal for democracy and also about the military industrial complex of the United States. There was about a hundred different um, military contractors listed. If you go down that list and you see, and they all come out in the 1930s and 1940s in the United States, and you look at this hundred and something so list, they all exist now, but they're all four different companies. They're Lockheed Martin, they're uh, what's uh, North Northman Grumman's. They're like uh, four or five different companies. So like, yes, it's completely overblown. The idea that America doesn't, in, doesn't have industry anymore. It's less overblown to say that at a place about great Britain. Right. Sure. Right. It, it's actually great. Britain has deindustrialized. And here's some other trends that I want people to think about. Britain's population during the decline of empire exploded partly because it took in a lot of the more well-off of the people in the former imperial places, which is why like Britain has racial diversity of significant amounts. Like the Commonwealth, a lot of it went back to the hub, um, which has also been part of what's increased the, the racial tensions and stuff that we see in Britain. And that's why we've had every 20 years um, from mostly up through the, um, the beginnings of the of the of the BMP through the Brexit Party through Farange, UKIP yeah. through yeah um, every about every twenty years you see a new wave uh, of marginal British fascism. I hate to tell you though, if you actually look at how marginal it is, it is less marginal than say American fascism, which yeah. which is something you know that's changing and that's changing because. Trump, but as I, I was talking to Joel Wainwright, and I mentioned this before, Joel and I pointed out, it happened in the U.S. late. Mm. And everyone is thinking Trump was the scion of this. Trump is like the end of this process. It's mm. uh, like, uh, when we get to like Maloney in, uh, in, in Italy, well, we have 20 years of, uh, there. We have from Bellasconi to the Liga. Yeah. We've been seeing them move more and more right wing the entire time. We're going to see it in Greece, I'm almost mm. certain. Um, Golden Dawn was a harbinger of, um, and similar to how the alt-right was a harbinger, and like you said, the British National Party and the National Front, alternative for Deutschland is probably the same thing. These are all harbingers of what you've seen happen in Italy, which is the mainstreaming of this sort of uh, post-fascist anti-migrant policy, cultural conservatism with some sort of economic heterodoxy thrown in in order to seem populist or whatever. Yeah. That is being mainstream in Sweden, right? The Swedish, uh, Sweden yeah, Democrats. And, and I hate to, I hate to, you know, I'm not saying this is causal because I'm too scientific to say that, but I will say it is not insignificant a correlation that um, the last time we had a major financial crisis and contraction 
was was the time where these incoherent and and I will want to point out they are economically incoherent. They're also class based incoherent. They're ideologically incoherent. But dangerous movements like fascism have really come up. Now I am hesitant to throw around the F word because I think a lot of this stuff we're going to see this time is going to we won't be able to map it exactly with fascism and trying to do so is going to mislead you. Yeah. Um, one of the, 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 one of the things that I've been saying for years that I was like, dude, this alt-right stuff is going to fail because even the white nationalists like Sam Francis in the 1990s said that they knew there wasn't a strong enough demographic push, even amongst white people for that to actually be maintainable, Mm. but that it would be something to bring about some kind of what they thought a counter elite of like petite bourgeois um, anti elitist uh, who hate Jews. Um, sure. Uh, a tale as old as time. Yeah. The, the hatred of Jews is common. And and this is what I'm going to get to. The reason why I think it's important we talk about this in terms of conspiracy mongering, yeah. which, which I think you and I have seen increase on the left dramatically. Big time. Yeah. Um, even, even in, even in very mainstream circles now. Yeah. Like, and and as we spoke about in our after Bernie episode, which might have been the first one that we did, mm-hmm. you know, it's not even to say that all of these people and the specific conspiracies that they're talking, or even in like the higher echelons of it, or like the more advanced. Well, some um, of the stuff is going to turn out to it's, be true. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's it's very true, but um, there's a difference between pointing to conspiracies and the, and like the broader conspiracism in right. which you know, which we've critiqued before. But I think like one of the things. We've had a problem since Moshe Pastone would have a talk about the banking issue, because I don't think there's been a conspiracy of bankers to take over the world. I think this has been a long development trend to try to manage um, profitability crises, inflation, deflation, stuff that was not even a part of capitalism, really, in the 19th and 18th century. Like, it is a wild how long money was stable. Mm. For example, money, monetary instability really begins in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And um, part of what it begins with is is what Bukharin talked about in his first analysis of imperialism, but was that that monopoly capital re- required integration with the state and that this required movements away from like really supply chain constrained money. Mm. Um like metal. Uh, and to get back into England, for example, England won't, isn't able to reindustrialize in any way near the scale that it once could because, one, it's not it's exhausted a lot of its resources, frankly. Mm. Two, um, its population scales are massively different because of immigration. Even though its population is declining relative numbers, it's still like, I don't know, look at what the population of England was in 1950 versus now what's it like 80 million right now yeah something like that yeah i mean like the population density is is greater than any state in in united states which is true for europe in general yeah and oh god it's only 67 million wow okay still um yeah but that that makes that hammers the point home even more (laughs) but 67 million in a in a country that is the size of like alabama yeah yeah all right um that is that it that does have access to water and like I, there is a way in which and this is something marxist i wish did more of 
is understanding the development of seed power to the development of capitalism. I think the, mm. the reason why you can even have a debate between whether or not capitalism again in Italy or in England is that after after the capitalization of agrarian labor and, and then the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, uh, the question is, well, how can it work? And you're like, well, sea trade seems pretty fucking important. Mm. Um, uh, so we have this this problem with England and we're seeing this hit Europe too, because Europe, I know again, I'm just being, I'm just being a geographer here is the dangly bits off Asia with the exception of the central part. It, it It's not big. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's never had a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, during, during prior European empires, the breadbasket of Europe was fucking North Africa. Mm-hmm. Like right. the 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 way you the way Europe has constrained itself, and I mean honestly, I think part of what's driven the various empires coming out of there is that it's not a very good place to set up uh, massive human populations because yeah. it's it's just it, it like oh it, it, just look at it on a map and and like yeah yeah the, but and it's interesting too because the same sort of like um international competitive tendencies that actually give birth um not just to um colonialism but also to capitalism itself <clears throat> so from a period of say the the 16th century to the really the mid 20th century right you have a lot of the sort of developmental drive of europe as a basket of different states arising out of the war making tendencies world war one and world war two of course are crucial and essential for the like increasing industrialization and reindustrialization of europe putting uh european economy on a stronger on a higher fitting uh, and of course, too, this imperial plunder that goes around when the attempt is made, starting with the European Coal Commission, you know, starting in the 1950s and 1960s in order to integrate, you know, it then you then have a period of time of I'd say up until 2008 or so when the integration of Europe, the moving away from these war based national economies, uh, customs and, you know, the rise of, a, of a, a, a trade union, essentially, between them. This integration actually gives juice to the to the European economy as capital is able to flow across borders more easily. People are able to move across borders into the 90s, you know, more easily. And of course, with the euro as well, which integrates a currency union between these, that integration of Europe gave some juice to Europe as a place, as a geographical place and as an economic place up until again, about 2008 or so. But again, that, that juice comes from the rationalization of what is it? 50 different nations and national economies, uh, their rationalization across borders, the destruction of unproductive capitals, uh, the movement of, uh, financial capital and commercial capital to new venues of exploitation, the opening up of places like Poland uh, and Romania, the Balkans in general, even uh, Spain and Greece uh, to German capital, to French capital, to Italian capital. So whereas in the past, it was actually the fractured nature of Europe that allowed it to have a world spanning imperial and capitalist uh, back. There was, I think, a, a moment of three or four decades where the opposite was the case. And now I think it's no surprise that the very irrational 
and screwed up and dysfunctional sort of union that exists, political and economic, uh, in Europe is starting to become a drag upon its um, productive capacity, a drag upon profits, as we've seen, and is leading to a situation where you're starting to see the breakup. You're starting to see the crack up. You saw this in 2010 between the south, southern parts of Europe and the northern parts of Europe. The sort of juice and the dynamism is out of that continent right now. And we're seeing this post-fascism, whatever you want to call it, is arising under conditions, very, very real conditions of um, birth rate decline, of low profits for the last 15 years or of so. high instability and, of immigration from yep. climate change and from political instability. And, and from, warfare in the Middle East and North Africa and all right, that. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this... And the fact that, that Africa is the only young continent like literally yeah. the only one where the and, where, and one where, that's highly unproletarianized and uncapitalized right. despite yep. China's uh failed efforts I think yeah, but, but, but just to explain what I mean by young continent to our listeners I mean it's literally demographically youthful like there's more people under 30 than not which is not the case anywhere else on the planet right now yeah. uh, actually and maybe I, it might not be true I think it's even I think you even have demographic decline in, in South America so so is it a surprise then that when these populist forces, which of course are ascendant on the right wing now, Bernieism and Corbynism having been destroyed, the the left parties of the continent of Europe having after the 1990s basically turned into Blairite or Clintonite parties, um, and this like deep social crisis that exists, is it a surprise then that this populist right takes on this conspiratorial great reset sort of mindset? this anti-world economic forum mindset, because it appears as though there is an attempt um, by bankers, by rulers, you know, to, to do a demographic shift on purpose or that uh, declining birth rates are the fault alone of political decisions um, or liberalism right, while liberalism or modernism. Right, right. The right of the right replacement conspiracy is, is popular. And there's, a, there's also a reason why, um, I, I actually this is this is one of the things where like I want people to really understand why these narratives have 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 some impact, and I'm actually going to put some blame on the left. Um, Please, I have seen people brag about declining in demographic weight so that liberals can win, yes, and then yeah. talk about why the white replacement you know conspiracy is bullshit. It is bullshit. It right? is. Uh, but because because just fundamentally, let me let me wrap it up and then I'll let you go. Like, uh-huh. I mean, it, it comes out of the dynamics of of capitalist society, right? Of course, like because of the the atomization, the elimination of the nuclear family as this sort of bond. This has happened everywhere that capitalism has happened because of, of course, women gaining the rights to control their reproductive freedom, and of course, this the sort not of cash next bad. No, like, no. And a lot of this is positive and good and stuff that we would want to like de-alienate beyond a capitalist um, a mode of production. But like these things happen everywhere. They happen in Japan. They're happening in China right now. They happen in the United States. They happen in Europe. It does yeah. not take a conspiracy, but these people want to turn it into a political thing. They want, but I'm sorry, con- continue. No, on. no. I, I, th- here's the thing. Like, this is where I'm probably going to baffle people a little bit. I don't like talking about degrowth communism because i think it's a bad way to frame it um uh but here's here's the truth 
A move away from agrarian societies means that children are no longer an economic asset. Also, they don't die as much. So we've you literally have a, a minor shift in reproductive strategies mm-hmm. from having a bunch of children, half of which will die, to having very few children. Um, but I also think we have to admit that all these people who, who like, I, I've had a lot of, you know, some people I like, some people who are allies of us mm. have, have, do have some like, well, we need high population rates. We need growth. And I'm like, you can't, there is a real sense in which even with worldwide declining demographics, we've still going to like quadruple the population mm. from, from the 1940s by, by taking care of so many problems that have normally just killed large swaths of humanity off. Mm we have to figure out a way to just maintain. And this is something some people going all the way back to the 19 fucking twenties knew Mm. like technocracy Inc was based around this idea. Like you had to get energy and populations like just naturally stable. Yeah. Um, and, and I think probably, you know, most of us would probably choose if we were in a functional society to have a couple of kids, however arranged, it would be arranged in a bunch of different ways, probably. But now. it would be about at the reproduction rate of humanity, maybe a little less. Yeah, maybe a little less for a while, you know. And as as space opened up, as as natural population decline happened, um, you probably see birth rates tick back up a little bit. I mean, like, but it, it, that would be good. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, no, I mean, just just logically, if you imagine there's less people on the planet, but we still have the sort of um, what would you call it? The gifts, the legacy of all this incredible productive apparatus, this uh, health technology, you know, the mm-hmm. buildings that we have that people can live in and work in or whatever. Just logically, it makes sense that you could have more for each person. You know, the, this is why these people, the populist right and the conspiracists and even the people on the left who ape them are MAGA communists or whatever. This is why they're so short-sighted and so uh, ridiculous. Honestly, even a lot of social Democrats who would never pick up that rhetoric. Actually. Wasn't there a Jap- Jacobin guy who was on about declining birth rates for a while? Yes, I... there, there's a bunch of them. There, yeah. there, there, there's, there, it's not... And look, there what, will be real problems of economic growth because of declining birth rates well, but in this capital. Is, but this is the whole point, and this is why it's stupid when quote-unquote Marxists fall into this entire thing. It naturalizes and dehistoricizes this particular mode of production and the particular logic of this mode of production. Bingo. And what we should be saying, honestly, as communists, is that what we want is for people to have enough food we want them to have shelter that honestly we should not be um that population decline is a part of is a, is a process is a historical process we shouldn't go back to the 1950s when there was another historical dynamic changing where the bourgeois family was sort of for many people the bourgeois family became the norm after which by the 1960s and 1970s that sort of dynamic was over we shouldn't be trying to reinstantiate or call back to a different era of capitalist development. What instead we should be doing is talking about an alternative to capitalist development where you have to have these contradictions between there's being so much stuff around being so many things produced, but no jobs for youth unemployment in Europe is between 25 and 40% on a good year. You know, the, the, the incredible contradictions of this system arise and it's, it almost seems like just like prima facie, like, 
like right. common sense for us to think instead of in growth or degrowth terms. Instead, of course, try to understand what a, I don't know, free association of producers would do with all of this incredible bounty that we have and this planet, which we got to start taking care of. Oh, hello. This is Sean in post-production. If you enjoyed 50 minutes of extended preview, you will surely enjoy the entire two-hour and 20-minute long episode with Derek Varn. In order to get the full app, uh, become a patron today at patreon.com slash the Antifada. All of the diving into the wreckages are in there. There's more to come. There's history of weapon, uh, history is a weapon in there. There's more of those to come. Huge archive of great content. So sign up at patreon.com slash the Antifada. Regardless, thanks so much for listening.